from the Miriam Institute. This is the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast. Hello, friends. I'm Benjamin Anthony, co-founder of the Miriam Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast, or IDDF, as we like to call it. It's your bi-weekly update on all hot-button issues relating to the State of Israel. Before I turn the program over to your hosts, I'd just like to ask all of you to be sure to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a rating and review at wherever it is you download your podcast from. Doing so will help us to reach an ever-wider audience. And I thank you in advance of your partnership on that front. Now, friends... Do you remember those old tenets of respectful and substantive dialogue, discussion, and debate? I certainly do, but they all seem to be under attack. And that's why, in this era of stifled debate, the Miriam Institute is really proud to produce the IDDF podcast. It's hosted and led by Chuck Freilich, a former Israeli Deputy National Security Advisor aligned with Israel's political center-left. And he'll be joined by Danny Ayalon, Israel's former ambassador to the United States of America, who's aligned with Israel's political center-right. Now, sometimes the two of them will agree, sometimes they'll disagree, but at all times, they will be bringing their storied track records, internationally acclaimed expertise, and enduring commitment to a secure and thriving state of Israel to the fore for the consideration of you, the listener. They'll discuss, spar over, and analyze matters of real consequence for Israel's future. I'm absolutely certain that you'll find the IDDF podcast as fascinating and thought-provoking as I do. Please remember, wherever you are politically, wherever you are physically, you can engage with Israel via the Miriam Institute. Be sure to visit our website at www.miriaminstitute.com to learn more about all of our initiatives. And now, it's over to your hosts, Professor Chuck Freilich and Ambassador Danny Ayalon. Danny, welcome. Uh, good to be back again. Absolutely, I missed you. <laughs> Likewise. But la- the truth is, we saw each other last night at a special event. We were at the wedding of Benjamin Anthony with his fiancée, Andrea, Benjamin, Benjamin, as I presume most of our listeners know, is the co-founder of the Miriam Institute, and we are both, I think, uh, simply thrilled for him and for Andrea, two really wonderful people found each other, and the wedding itself overlooking the old city in Jerusalem couldn't have been nicer. Yes, it, it was really special, and uh, I would say certainly it was a great, great day for uh, for Benjamin and his wife, uh, Andra, I think it was also a very, very important and uh, festive uh, day for the Miriam Institute. I think uh, we all, uh, as uh, one person, participated in the wedding and uh, in the joy. And as you mentioned, the Has Promenade in uh, Jerusalem overlooking the entire old city was, was also very, very special and uh, I think very uh, fitting for uh, a Zionist uh, uh, organization and a Zionist uh, person like uh, like uh, you know Benjamin, so it was very very nice. Absolutely, and so a big uh, mazalto from both of us to Benjamin and Andrea. May you have a really wonderful life together, 
And I think it's maybe a measure of the esteem that people uh, hold uh, both of the of the couple, uh, but specifically here it was Benjamin. Uh, Danny and I slept just from the Tel Aviv area to Jerusalem, not a big deal, but a number of board members came, especially from the United States, to be with them on this occasion. So again, Mazal Tov. Mazal Tov, Amen. And uh, Chuck, if uh, congratulations are in, in order, I think there is another uh, big day and uh, big event today is the day we record it. And to all our listeners, um, Chuck just uh, published uh, his book, uh, which is called Israel National Security, A New Strategy for an Era of Change. And this was published by the very prestigious uh, Oxford uh, Publishing House. And um, this book um, also won a very prestigious award, the Chechik Award, and uh, the INSS, uh, one of uh, probably the uh, um, most uh, uh, interesting or most... Uh, the leading, I think, uh, the leading... Yeah, the tank. leading uh, think tank in, in Israel uh, is awarding uh, Chuck today with his Chechik Award, and uh, we all look forward. It's a, a very fresh uh, look at Israel's national uh, security. Uh, Israel and successive Israeli government uh, have always been blamed or accused for not have, having a coherent or cohesive uh, national security, but uh, doing it, you know, from one, I mean, handling one crisis after another without looking at the total big picture. And uh, what Chuck is doing is really trying to make sense into all the uh, moving uh, parts and the bits of pieces, which are myriads of them, and trying to put together a very, very um, coherent uh, strategy. It's uh, a book which is very, very much recommended to professionals and also to not professionals to really get a great sense of uh, Israel, Israel's uh, policy, and Israel's in uh, its place in the Middle East and in the world. So, uh, Chuck, congratulations for this very prestigious award. Thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate it. I must say the, the award was very gratifying. It also uh, joins uh, two other awards, the, the Heiken Prize uh, a couple of years ago when, when the book first came out, and in another few weeks, in the, the Heiken and the INSS Prizes were first place, um, and in a few weeks, there's the Yitzhak Sader Award. And there it was a runner-up, which, of course, was a mistake on their part. But uh, no, more seriously, I'm really gratified because this was, to an extent, a life's work. And as Danny was saying, the idea was to finally put in writing a, an orderly, a comprehensive, systematic national security strategy. Um, actually, it's the first open source proposal ever for an Israeli national security strategy. I'm very happy to say that since the book came out, a couple of other people have done much shorter pieces, but have also contributed to the national dialogue on this. It's, uh, I believe, absolutely critical. I think we'll devote a separate podcast at some point just to some of the findings of the book. But let me quickly give a couple of the primary themes I think that Israel's national security strategy, or maybe I should say its practice, since there really wasn't a, a, 
a formulated strategy. But Israel's practice has been a phenomenal success. Israel exists today. That was not a foregone conclusion in the early decades. And we've become an established, prosperous, and essentially secure state. When I say essentially secure, it means nobody can destroy the state of Israel anymore. We're uh, even Iran, if they go nuclear, will handle it. Uh, we have to do everything to prevent it, but I believe that the existential stage is behind us. The primary threat today that the Arab states pose to Israel is actually their internal weakness, the fact that so many of them are, are in severe crisis. And I always re- remind myself of uh, Ben-Gurion's famous saying back in the 1950s, that if Israel ever had a Jewish population of 5 million, which was simply an unfathomable number at that time, uh, that its security, its existence would be assured, well, we crossed the 7.5 million mark. So I think Israel has won its existence. By the way, when I say this in front of Israeli audiences, Jewish audiences abroad, I get a lot of pushback. Uh, How can you say we won our existence, the existential threat is behind us? Jews have a hard time accepting good news, for good reason. But I believe that's the case, and I believe that Israel has never been stronger, the Arab side never weaker. There is a window of opportunity for Israel to try and set its national course from a position of strength to make some of the critical decisions that we have to make, uh, first and foremost on the Palestinian issue, on Iran, and... Having said some positive and maybe optimistic things, then of course uh, Jewish tradition requires that I balance it with the downside, and that is, yes, uh, major threats still remain, first and foremost Iran and its nuclear program and Hezbollah, and so Israel still faces some very, very severe external threats, and at the same time I'm maybe most concerned today about our domestic challenges which are a different kind of threat and are in some ways harder to answer, to, to deal with. But we'll come back to that another time. Yeah, Chuck, just uh, <clears throat> one quick uh, um, remark is that, uh, yes, you're right, uh, uh, Jews have always been uh, uh, hired at accepting good news. They don't think uh, we are to blame, given our history for the last 2,000 and even uh, 3,000 and more years. And, uh, you know, we say that uh, even, uh, uh, I mean, the fact that uh, one is a paranoid doesn't mean that they are not those who are um, trying to, to get him. Right. Uh, so, yes, we, we are much stronger today than um, ever before since our um, Independence Day in 1948. But that doesn't mean that uh, we can sit on the laurels and enjoy. We should keep on our toes and uh, trying to... Uh, uh, look forward and, and and be prepared for any uh, any eventuality. Uh, one last thing about you mentioned Ben Gurion. He also said something which is very important: is that uh, it's not uh, so important what the the goyim say; it's more important what the Jews do. And so far, we have been uh, really doing marvelously, building a very very fine country with great achievements. Although now, from a, a social point of view, the social fabrics, political uh, situation is uh, probably, maybe even like other places in the world, including the United States, is more polarized than ever before. And I I truly uh, 
agree with you that uh, this is the most uh, uh, important uh, challenge for Israel, and it's much more existential than any external threat that we have, but uh, I believe that always the reasons will uh, prevail, and unlike the um, polarity in uh, the countries around us, which uh, and, and disputes which are being uh, uh, resolved by bullets, here in Israel will always, even the most uh, um, acrimonious um, debates will be resolved in the ballots and not by bullets. Well, I certainly hope that's the case. I'm no longer entirely convinced, but that's a whole separate discussion. I think we're going to start with the Palestinian issue today, which is, of course, a critical one and one which we have not yet addressed in the five months that we've been doing this podcast. But before doing so, let me just remind listeners that you can send in questions, uh, requests for us to address certain topics that you're interested in. You can state your disagreements with what we're saying. Uh, and if by chance you even agree with what you say, we say, please feel free to do that as well. Send your emails to IDDF, that stands for the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum. So IDDF at the MiriamInstitute.org. Miriam is spelled with a Y, M-I-R-Y-A-M, Institute, one word, dot org. So the Palestinian issue uh, hasn't been a good few weeks, and actually for the last half year there's been a significant increase in terrorism in the West Bank, especially the last few weeks. This month marks 22 years since the Second Intifada broke out, December will be 25 years since the first Intifada. And it's also, uh, I believe in June or in July, it was 15 years since Hamas took over in Gaza. And since then, there have been five major conflicts, uh, a whole slew of more limited ones in Gaza. We, in 2014, we had the half-year-long Intifada of the Knives. In the spring of this year, we had a period of heightened attacks. And it all, it's, it's something that, I, at least I've almost forgotten, uh, but just a few weeks ago, in the first week of August, we had the last round with Hamas in Gaza. Yeah, Islamic Jihad. Wait, right, absolutely right, with the Islamic Jihad in Gaza. We called it Operation Breaking Dawn. Yes, and it seems like um, this uh, uptick in violence um, and terrorism uh, in the West Bank uh, is also pretty much inspired and um, motivated by um, Islamic uh, radicalism, whether it's uh, Hamas and uh, Islamic Jihad. They have um, strongholds in uh, Judea and Samaria, mostly in Samaria, which is the northern part of the uh, West Bank. Traditionally, Janine and Nablus have been uh, areas of um, extreme uh, radical uh, Islamism. There's also, uh, in the other side, the extreme in south, in, in Hebron, also there is some. But um, I would say that um, it is Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Islamic Jihad and Hamas are very much, uh, I would say, uh, being um, 
let's say, controlled by Iran. And um, it is um, quite amazing to see Hamas, I believe, and Islamic Jihad, certainly after breaking down, are very much deterred. The people of Gaza suffer very much under the yoke of this uh, terror organization which controls Gaza, Hamas, or Hamas uh, government, uh, if you can uh, call it uh, this way. And Hamas understands that they cannot really uh, push so much this uh, ver very beleaguered population, and uh, this is why they're trying to keep uh, quiet in Gaza, but stir up the, uh, the West Bank. And in a way, this is uh, terrorism by, by proxies, where Hamas are using their cells. Uh, Iran is also using Hamas to use their cells. And um, what we see so far is very much motivated by uh, radical uh, Islam. We do not see yet, and I hope we will not see the uh, Palestinian Authority uh, joining uh, that, uh, like in the second uh, intifada, second intifada. If you recall, Chuck, it was uh, very much some call it an uh, armed uh, struggle or or a war, and that was pretty much uh, handled by the uh, uh, the authorities, uh, Arafat's uh, uh, forces. Uh, much to the criticism of uh, in in Israel, you know, we said that uh, Israel was the one that supplied or allowed the the supply of uh, weapons to the Palestinian Authority in order to fight terrorism. But instead of fighting terrorism, they turned these weapons against us. And hence, you know, we had the worst wave of uh, terror for almost five years. More than a thousand Israelis were killed, a few thousands uh, injured. I'm not sure that we will face the same situation now, although we do not see much of uh, the Palestinian Authority forces um, being uh, effective, if at all, trying to uh, stop this uh, terrorism coming from mostly from, as we mentioned, Nablus and, uh, and, and Janine. And uh, so, although it may not be planned at this point, we know in the Middle East that uh, things can uh, happen. And uh, even if it's not planned, it can uh, explode into a much larger conflict that we see now. Uh, and certainly Israel has to prepare for that. And uh, later on, we will talk about... Uh, what uh, should be done. I have some ideas myself, but uh, Chuck, what do you think that uh, the chances are for either a third intifada or uh, or a continued uh, violence, uh, maybe to the extent that uh, even the, um, the legitimacy and even the very existence, structural existence of the Palestinian Authority as we know it now, headed by... Uh, Abu Mazen, which is also on his way out, what do you think the chances for uh, a total different shift and upheaval coming out uh, from the West Bank? Well, I think this actually may be a very good moment to bring in a friend and colleague of ours who is an expert on Palestinian affairs. We have with us today one of Israel's foremost experts on Palestinian affairs, Yochanan Suref, an old colleague and friend of both Danny and Mines. Yochanan was a lieutenant colonel in military intelligence, specializing in Palestinian affairs. He is the former head of the Department of Middle Eastern and Palestinian Affairs in the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. And he is today a senior analyst at INSS, Israel's foremost uh, think tank. Uh, Yochanan, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for joining me, for inviting me. It's our pleasure. So let me start, and Daniel, jump in in one minute with some questions as well. We've had a significant uptick in violence in the West Bank the last couple of weeks and the last uh, half year in general. Why do you think it happened, and uh, how long will Gaza remain quiet? Look, I think we are suffering now for more than eight months from escalation that was created by Hamas. Since the beginning of 2022, Hamas tried to create an atmosphere of escalation in the area. It begins with four terror attacks that uh, took place inside Israel. And after the, the reaction of Israel inside the territories, create another round of escalation. So we have uh, acts and reaction, and then we find people who want to to, to take revenge or a, a, a phenomenon of mimicry from the uh, 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 younger Palestinians uh, who want to, 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 to show their society that they can be part of this uh, fight against Israel. And uh, uh, this trend is continued because at the same time, we find that the, the security Palestinian systems has a weak ability to work, especially in these areas of Jenin and, uh, and Nablus. And the Israel, the Israeli army is imposed to, to do this work instead of, uh, of uh, the Palestinian security system. So we found ourselves uh, 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 imposed to do this work that we prefer not to do it uh, at usual days because of the internal Palestinian situation. And uh, I think that at the same time, we have to say that uh, Hamas who stand uh, from the south, look at the situation inside the, the West Bank and uh, really wants to increase the confrontation between the young Palestinians and the IDF, the Israeli army, but it prefer not to involve Gaza in this uh, 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 escalation because according to Hamas in this period, there is a need for, a, you know, a break, a big break for uh, uh, the citizens of Gaza. And also, let's, let's say, the, 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 the fighters of Hamas, okay? They need to take a break after so many confrontations with Israel. So this is a situation I think that we... We, we, we are talking about, uh, and we, we are not, we are, I'm still not talk, talking about the, the wider background of all this uh, situation. Hi, Yohanan. It's uh, really good to have you. Thank you again for uh, joining us. Um, I, I wondered, uh, you know, the first Intifada in 87 was not planned. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one, after the mm -hmm. Kim failed Kim David uh, summit, mm -hmm. I believe was very much planned ahead mm -hmm. by Arafat and his, his cronies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, w what 
what are the chances for a third intifada? And if there is a third intifada, will it be more like the first one or the second one or maybe something mm -hmm. totally different? Look, Danny, first of all, I think that the second wasn't intifada. The second was armed struggle. Intifada, from my point of view, is a, a, the participation of the public. Without the public, without demonstration in the streets, uh, with the many, many people, it's not intifada. From, even from the Palestinian point of view, there is a big differentiation between armed struggle and intifada. Abu Mazen used to call it a peace demonstration. And, uh, and uh, even Hamas adopted this kind of demonstration. If you remember, during the period uh, uh, after 2017, they made a lot of uh, demonstration all over the border in Gaza Strip. Okay? Now, without the public, it's not intifada. It's a terror, it's a terror war or, or, or armed struggle or, or you can find which way you want, okay? This is the reason also why the first intifada succeeded from the Palestinian point of view and the second was a big failure, okay? Because when you are, when you are not using the armed struggle, is better to you to get the support of the international community. Without the support of the international community, there is no, there is nothing that you can you can achieve in your in your in your struggle. So it's bring me now to your question: Is it possible that there will be a third intifada? as much as I estimate the internal Palestinian situation, the people, the Palestinian people lost their belief in their leaderships. I'm talking about the PA and also Hamas, because the main problem today inside the Palestinian arena is which way we can we have to we have to choose now because the pa or fatah didn't succeed in its strategic of negotiations and hamas the re resistance organization didn't succeeded didn't succeed to push forward the idea of 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 uh, 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 reaching to a uh, 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 Palestinian independent, okay? So so what what are we talking about? So there is no way to to go to the streets without a, a, a common leadership. This is why they call all the time to unify the the the, the power, okay? They want to make a reconciliation between the two leadership leaderships. I, mean, I don't find that there is a way in these days to reach to this kind of reconciliation. So if you are talking about intifada, that the public is playing the, the main role in it, 
I don't think that there will be Intifada in the, in the near future. Maybe after the day of Abu Mazen, if they will find a way to unify the powers, maybe you, you, we will be able to talk about this current. In any other ways, there will be an armed struggle. As we find even today, you can call it in some places in the West Bank, we have to talk about some kind of armed struggle. It's not intifada. It's something that we can deal with it. Okay? So I think it's far away to talk today about intifada. I think that Abu Mazen is still the, the person who prevents all this kind of, of violence. I agree with most of what uh, Danny was saying before. I'd like to add one point and add one area of disagreement. The additional point that I think is very important to take into account, two actually, one is that the Iranians are surrounding Israel on all sides. So it's Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza, it's Hezbollah in the north and Hezbollah and the Iranians themselves in Syria. And since they're afraid that we can hit them uh, in the areas near our borders, you also see Iran deploying missiles in Iraq and Yemen and beginning to deploy a significant naval capability. So that was one addition. The second addition is that unfortunately, very unfortunately, some 40 years after the rocket threat first emerged, and it has become the primary threat we face, rockets and missiles, we do not yet have an effective capability to address them offensively. So we all know that Iron Dome has proven itself uh, to be a re truly remarkable defensive system, but we don't have the offensive capability to suppress rocket fire. We saw that in the earlier rounds with Hamas. We saw it, uh, well, we didn't yet have uh, Iron Dome in 2006 uh, in the last big round with uh, Hezbollah, but we didn't have the ability to suppress rocket fire then, and we still don't now. And this came out in stark relief in the round just a few weeks ago, Operation uh, Breaking Dawn against the PIJ, which is really a small, uh, I don't want to say insignificant, but a very small terrorist organization. And they were able to continue firing, even though um, we surprised them. We dictated the timing this time. We opened fire first, so to speak. Of course, there's in response to things that they were doing. And still, the fighting went on for a few days, and we couldn't stop the rocket fire. And that, that's something we all have to, uh, we have to take that into account and be very careful in our thinking. Of course, and I think it's uh, right mentioning why cannot we cannot really take it offensively yet. First of all, because they're all spread out. And uh, every uh, kids who are uh, 15 years and older can just fire these uh, rockets that, uh, that they make. And also, one thing that um, makes uh, it harder for Israel to do it is that, you know, this uh, Hamas and uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, they are uh, embedding those rockets in and among populated um, areas. And of course, Israel is very, very careful not to uh, hit the not involved. We know that uh, the, the Hamas and Islamic Jihad, they specifically uh, fire from schools and kindergartens and hospitals and even private homes. 
and by that committing a, uh, a double uh, war crimes by uh, risking their own population, using their own population as a, um, as a uh, human shield, and of course firing at our own population. So the only way right now uh, to, uh, to stop this offensively is to, uh, to, to conquer areas. To, to get boots on the ground, which uh, Israel is not uh, willing to do that, because also, first of all, it will uh, risk uh, a lot of our troops, and also will uh, the collateral damage will be um, exorbitant, and uh, we do not uh, want to do that. So at this point, it seems like the defensive operation, and uh, soon, uh, hopefully soon enough, we will get uh, another layer of defense with the laser, uh, capability. Hopefully, this will give us a, uh, a maybe not a hundred percent defense. Uh, there is no hundred percent defense, but at least uh, it will reach such levels which um, will will make our security uh, so much better that it will uh, actually deter uh, those terror organizations from uh, starting another uh, round because they will not achieve their uh, uh, their objectives. Well, I didn't intend to talk about the lasers, but since you brought it up, I think this is a system that has been greatly oversold. It's not the game changer that we all hoped, and I can tell you, when I read the first reports about it, I was, of course, very excited. I was thrilled. Oh, we finally have the response. It's not. It's another additional layer of defense, but it adds specific capabilities, it doesn't change the picture. And we are still going to face this threat. And if we don't have the offensive capability, everything you said about the fact that the Palestinians embed uh, their rockets among uh, their civilian population, it's all true. But that's been the case for decades. And not the, the Palestinians do it, Hezbollah does it. That's the situation. And given those circumstances, we don't yet have the offensive capability to do it at a price that we're willing to pay. And the price is both, of course, our own civilians and, and, and soldiers and uh, um, Palestinian or Lebanese casualties. We're in a strange situation, which is that, on the one hand, the threat really is severe already today. And if there's a war that breaks out with Iran over the nuclear issue, and then Hezbollah almost definitely will join in, Israel's home front is going to be hit in a way that we've never been hit before. And yes, defense will provide a partial response, but our offensive capability to deal with this is quite limited. And as you're saying, it requires conquering territory. That's lots of casualties. Uh, anyway. We've unless, unless, Chuck, we use what we will not use because of the Jewish... Uh, um, morality and Israeli ethos and um, th there is a way to stop it in a more effective way, so to speak, is using the, the Russian way, which is carpet yeah, bombing. We can't, we can't do that. And we cannot do it. But uh, sometimes I'm thinking to myself, you know, as the French say, en la guerre comme la guerre, you know, when, when you're in a war, when you are facing existential questions, then everything is legitimate. I hope we will not get into that. But uh, uh, Israel has the means to defend uh, ourselves and to, uh, to um, maybe even lessen 
Israeli casualties here if we um, use all our capabilities in a very aggressive way. Uh, but that would be kind of a last resort uh, you know, effort, and uh, I hope we will not get to that. Okay. Uh, the, the area where I wanted to disagree was you talked about deterrence, uh, that we've built up deterrence towards um, PIJ, maybe towards Hamas. I think the, the proof is in the pudding. The fact that we keep having major rounds uh, maybe every few years and small rounds in between is really proof that we haven't achieved significant deterrence against Hamas yet and, and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Hezbollah, maybe. The fact is we've had 16 years of quiet on the Lebanese front. That's remarkable. We haven't had that kind of quiet uh, since the 1960s. And when the 2006 war ended, I, I was thinking optimistically if we have two or three years quiet, that would be good. So that's been quite remarkable. But um, on the Gaza front, it's not going nearly as well. Right, but uh, I think the answer is uh, in what you said yourself, Chuck, is this is we have rounds of violence. And in between the rounds, and uh, right, they are too, uh, too short of a time elapses between rounds, but the fact that we do have rounds, in my mind, it is because of deterrence. Without deterrence, we would have had uh, um, incessant um, terror, and the fighting on a daily basis. The fact that we do not have fighting on a daily basis, only just spikes, is only because of uh, deterrence. And uh, the the uh, the objective right now is to really achieve uh, longer lulls uh, or the longest uh, possible at this time. And I think because, again, I go back to what I said before, uh, because of deterrence, it is that... Uh, Islamic, um, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and, and Hamas are deterred from operation from Gaza, and this is why they incite their uh, uh, cronies in uh, in the West Bank. Well, they're not so deterred in Gaza because we we do keep having the rounds, and of course it could be much worse. You're absolutely right about that, but too many rounds going on. There, it seems like right now. Uh, mm -hmm. that we see most of the violence and terror come from the northern part of uh, Samaria or the, the West Bank, Nablus mm -hmm. and, um, and Jenny, which are really strongholds of uh, Hamas. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, in the other areas, the southern parts of uh, the, the West Bank, it seems like they are not quite happy to, to join, maybe because their standard of living is much higher. Uh, maybe they're still stung because of uh, they knew that in the second Intifada or these armed struggles, they lost a lot and they're mm -hmm. not, uh, ready to join. Is there a, a chance or a way, maybe it could be a good strategy for Israel to try and separate the northern West Bank from the rest of the area like we did? quite successfully uh, separating between Gaza and the West Bank. Look, I must tell you that the, the situation of the Palestinian Authority is very interesting, you know, because if you, if you hear or look to the criticism that 
the Palestinian Authority absorbed during the last two years, and especially in the last eight months, so many pressure of the Palestinian Authority, and it's still standing on its leg. The Palestinian Authority, even all, all this pressure, didn't collapse. It means that there is something in the basic of this institute that put it in the, the place that it was at the beginning, okay? I think that many people continue to see the Palestinian Authority as their address. I think that many people, even in Hamas, think that this institute, institute has to continue existing, even in the day after Abu Mazen, because it's a national achievement, and we need to keep it. The question is how, how kind, what kind of, of, of PA we will find in the day after Abu Mazen. But there is a consensus about the need to keep it. Okay, now it's true that in the north of the West Bank there is a groups who don't accept the policy of the PA and and all, all the time, not only in the, in the last few years, but all the time there were problems in Jenin and also in, in, place, in some places in Nablus. In Nablus. It's, it's not easy to, guess, to get a discipline in this, in this area for the Palestinian security, security system. There is a a, a, a cooperation between groups of the Jihad Islami, Hamas, and today even between Jihad Islami and what we call uh, Al-Aqsa troops, yes, uh, 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 which belong to, to, to Fatah movement, okay? There is a cooperation there between them against the IDF, against the Israeli army. So the Palestinian Authority and the, the, the security system has a lack a, 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 a power, a less power than it has before, to deal with this problem because they lost a lot of their legitimacy. This is not the picture in the south and not even in the cent center of the West Bank. So we are talking about a very compound situation from the Palestinian point of view. And I think that we, from our point of view, from the point of view of Israel, we need to find a way how to increase the power of this authority. How much does this have to do with the overall weakening of the Palestinian Authority and the succession issue, succession to, to Abbas? We'll get into succession in a minute, but how related mm -hmm. is it to that? Look, I think that uh, uh, we have a, a long experience with the Palestinian Authority especially with the security system. If you look uh, 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 to the uh, uh, 
estimations that all the, the, the commander of the Israeli uh, uh, security system, the Shabak, gave during the last 15 or 17 years to the effectiveness of this security system, most of them, I think may, even all of them, say that there is a good coordination between the Israel, Israeli side and the Palestinian side. What happened in the last, let's say, seven years, I think that the, we have to, to talk about this situation since 2015, okay? Uh, uh, there is a, a deterioration in the uh, uh, legitimacy of Abu Mazen as the leader of the Palestinians. Because people look at the situation and see that there is no any kind of progress in the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians. And they thought that Israel, since 2009, is not really ready to promote or to push forward any kind of negotiations. And it put Abu Mazen, who all the time talk about negotiation and uh, prevent any kind of violence against Israel, in a very sensitive situation, okay? is considered by his people as a person who lost his case. He didn't succeed to prove that there is a, a, a big hope in the negotiation. He didn't succeed to give hope to the people that the patient is a good way and we can we can depend on it that and in the near future there will be something better. And when we reach to Trump administration, to the Trump period, uh, I think that it was the biggest uh, 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 hit that he, he, he got from the American side because uh, uh, according to the Palestinian interpretation, the deal of the century ignored the Palestinians' needs. Because uh, they ask themselves, how can an American administration could think that we as Palestinians can accept this kind of deal? Okay, and 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 after all the the the, the preparation that they have had before, uh, uh, they uh, uh, presented their uh, 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 plan. How could they think that the Palestinian can could get this kind of 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 play? So it put Abu Mazen in a very very bad situation. Uh, his people said, "Look, even the American ignore you. So how can you ask us to prevent from doing uh, activities, terror activities, or what they call the arm struggle against Israel?" So I think that uh, 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 during the last 12 years, or, or if you want to be more concentrated, is since 2015, I think that the Palestinian Authority lose its legitimacy in front in, of its people. And the weakness that we find he, he today is, uh, is the biggest crisis that we have seen uh, till I think 
since the beginning of Oslo. Hi everybody, I very much hope you're enjoying this episode of the IDTF podcast as much as I am. Remember, you can submit your questions and comments directly to Chuck and Danny via their email address at iddf at miriaminstitute.org. I'd also like to invite you to visit the Miriam Institute website at www.miriaminstitute.org. There you'll be able to see the missions of the Miriam Institute and to invest in our work by way of a tax-deductible donation. Each year, our organization operates three gold standard tours to the State of Israel. The first, ISAP, brings cadets from the U.S. and Canadian military academies to Israel for a 16-day deep dive into the strategic and policy considerations of the country. All of those cadets will go on to serve as officers in their respective armed forces. We also bring a delegation of active U.S. Army officers for a seven-day tour with the same focus, and we also bring about an exclusive tour of the State of Israel for elite graduate students from around the world, all of whom are bound for careers in policymaking and shaping. Together with our top-tier written, recorded, and filmed commentary, the Miriam Institute is your one-stop shop for all things Israel. Wherever you are politically, wherever you are physically, you can engage with Israel via the Miriam Institute. And now, it's back to the IDDF podcast with Chuck Freilich and Danny Ayalon. In any event, I think one of the questions is why we've had this outbreak of violence in recent months. And the fear was actually that it would break out over Jerusalem as it did a year ago in May 21. Now it's happening of its own accord in the West Bank um, with numbers of Palestinians involved in the violence that we haven't seen since the bad old days of the Second Intifada. It hasn't been because of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem can always be the spark in, the, in what is an absolute tinderbox. And again, I think we can turn to Yochanan to hear what he thinks, why the uh, violence has broken out in recent months. Well, Chuck, in addition to what uh, Yochanan said, and I, I think it was very, uh, very, very um, enlightening and uh, very interesting what he said, but I think also uh, there is a, a, a major reason of uh, maybe um, this, this uptick in violence is that, uh, and we were talking beforehand about uh, deterrence, the second intifada ended in a major loss for the Palestinians, especially loss of uh, many of their privileges, of their economic situation, and um, since then it is very hard to motivate those uh, Palestinians who experienced this intifada uh, 20, 22 years ago to um, to join a, um, a, viol- a violence campaign against Israel because they do not want to lose um, basically their uh, um, economic uh, benefits that they have now. If you go to Ramallah now, it's like almost any other Western country. Uh, Looks how- like a very prosperous city. Yes. However, uh, since 22 years elapsed, there is a new generation of Palestinians, younger gen- generations who have not experienced 
the second intifada, certainly not the first intifada, and um, and they um, maybe they are less uh, responsible than the older generation, and maybe they feel like uh, they have nothing to lose on the one hand. Secondly, they feel more um, adventurous in uh, trying to do some things. Uh, certainly, those who are uh, are are unemployed. Uh, so this, I think, also is giving uh, the the back uh, the backdrop for uh, uh, what we see today. And as uh, Yohanan mentioned, and uh, the lack of any motivation or uh, any uh, capabilities by uh, the Palestinian Authority forces to uh, counter them and to stop them is the result of what we see now. Uh, one thing that I think is also worth mentioning, Chuck, is that. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, it's very much uh, motivated by Islamic, uh, radical Islam, whether it's Hamas or the Pij. And uh, here it is worth noting that um, this uh, Hamas and Islamic uh, Jihad, um, they uh, aim is to take out the Palestinian Authority, as we know it. So here, basically, Israel and the Palestinian Authority share the same overall interest of not letting Hamas and the Palestinian uh, um, Islamic Jihad have the upper hand and basically what I have maintained all along is that without Israel's military uh, presence in the West Bank um, the situation would have been much worse and uh, I'm not sure that Abu Mazen could have survived and I'm not sure that we would have had a functioning Palestinian authority um, as much as they are very uh, uh, poor uh, in their um, in their achievements, but without Israel, the Palestinian Authority and Abu Mazen would not be. Well, of course, in the short term, you're absolutely right. Uh, if the IDF wasn't as active as it is, of course, the situation would be worse. But here's where I think there's a difference between the right and the left, and maybe how. W- uh, we personally, uh, the two of us, approach things. I, I guess, give more emphasis to the Israeli side of the picture, what we're doing wrong. I agree with everything you say, and there's more that we can say to criticize the Palestinians, of course. And I think we both do agree that in the end, most of the blame for the current situation uh, is on the Palestinian side. I'm talking the big picture. But there are also a number of things that Israel has been doing or not doing in recent months that have contributed to the to the rise of uh, the violence. So, of course, it's the fact that there isn't a political horizon and hasn't been for a long time. And by the way, we know from past experience when negotiations are underway at the height, uh, even when it looks like there may be a breakthrough, that's exactly when we see a further rise in Palestinian violence. But the for a lot of the young people, what they see is just no future is one of the sources of uh, what's happening. And here, both sides, certainly we have not been amenable to progress on the negotiations. Second of all, there's been a change in the status of the Temple Mount in recent years. Israel is allowing more and more Jews to go up to the, to the mount. In the past, we didn't allow it. And this has angered not just the Palestinians, but the Jordanians, King Abdullah. Jordan has a 
say in the final status of Jerusalem uh, that was agreed in the peace agreement with them in 94. And Jerusalem is the ultimate tinderbox. Then the government, uh, the Israeli government now, has been a little bit passive in recent months, not in terms of uh, letting the IDF act to prevent terrorism. Actually, IDF has been very, uh, very active in the last few months. But the current, the outgoing government is afraid to um, take too much action. They're afraid of not taking action. They're afraid of the right wing of response. Uh, if they say anything moderate, they're afraid that Netanyahu will make an absolute, uh, uh, he will take advantage of it for electoral purposes. If they try to strengthen the PA, which has been greatly weakened in recent years, if they try to suggest a a political horizon, Netanyahu will use this to his advantage in the upcoming elections. One of the reasons that we can't prevent the attacks in the West Bank or prevent them completely is because the security fence, which we started building in 2002, still hasn't been completed. And the reason it hasn't been completed is because the right wing objects to it, because they're afraid that that will be the final border. There's actually, well... There is some case to be made. It could be. As a matter of fact, uh, many people have come to see the current fence line as being a likely final border or something like it. So there is some truth to their fear. And at the same time, there can be changes in the final delineation. There will be. We also see the the battle for succession uh, to Abbas heating up. We'll talk to Yohanan about that. The Palestinians are also responding to the rise in settler violence. And we have seen all sorts of really intolerable attacks in recent years and in recent uh, months. People taking the law to their hands, just vigilantism, the so-called the Norgvot, the, uh, the hilltop youth. So uh, we're doing things also. And maybe the worst thing that's happening at the moment is that it looks like this ultra, ultra right-wing, I would say even racist and fascist party, headed by Itamar Ben-Gvir and uh, Smotrich, the so-called religious Zionist party, I think that name is a disgrace to the Zionist movement, but it looks like they're going to get nine, ten seats. They could be the third or fourth, probably fourth largest party in the next Knesset. This is just a horror, and if they are elected, the violence will, I don't know, all hell will break loose. Well, Chuck, you know, Jews are, are excellent at uh, blaming themselves. Uh, I don't think um, Israel should take uh, any part in the blame of the Palestinian violence whatsoever. Yes, it is true that the Ben Greer, Smotrich, um, the so-called uh, Zionist uh, uh, party or is, uh, is really not, yeah. uh, yes, is, is not really true uh, Zionism. I do not approve of anything that uh, they do. Although, unfortunately, we have a lot of young people, first-time voters, that vote for Smotrich and uh, Ben Gvir because of uh, uh, this is their response to the Palestinian uh, terror and, uh, and violence. And um, the fact that um, Jews go and pray, and not pray, they cannot pray, but go visit the uh, the Temple Mount is something which is so obvious that, uh, you know, uh, because of uh, this uh, Palestinian and, and, uh, 
and radical Islam um, incitement and uh, indoctrination. It seems like uh, this is something which is uh, um, a, a special uh, privilege uh, that Jews should not actually visit their most holy place, the, the real soul and, uh, and heart of the, of the Jewish people. I think this is um, an abomination that uh, we have to ask the Palestinians or the Jordanian, the Waqf, those who manage the Temple Mount, we have to ask them permission to visit in the most holy place for, for Israel. I think that the only similar or analogy I can make is just think, Chuck, that if the Washington Memorial in Washington, D.C. would be uh, barred or uh, excluded from visiting by Americans, that some uh, external force would say, no, it's a, a real offense for us if Americans come and uh, visit and pay respect to uh, to Washington, George Washington at the, at the Washington Memorial in Washington, D.C. Of course, it's something which is unheard of and nobody will accept it. The same thing is with us. Unfortunately, uh, when it comes to, to the Jews in Israel, people look at it as cans and... Uh, uh, they do not really accept the very inherent natural rights, uh, the obvious rights of Jews to visit uh, in the place where two of our Jewish temples were erected, where actually the Jewish people was formed there, and uh, actually the yearning to come back to Jerusalem and Temple Mount was what kept the Jews in exile for 2,000 years against the uh, all odds we we kept together. So this is something that um, I think has to be taken off the, um, the 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 dialogue. It's something which is very very obvious. And the last thing I want to say about uh, um, you mentioned defense. You're right. Um, defense. I do believe the defense should be completed. Uh, I, by the way, do not see the fence necessarily as a demarcation of um, uh, territorial, uh, uh, let's say, uh, split between Israel and maybe a future Palestinian entity, whatever um, characteristic it may take. Uh, fences are uh, replaceable. It is not something which is uh, it not uh, reversible. So, yes, I would uh, certainly put a lot of... Uh, um, cash and a lot of uh, faith in a, a more effective fence to keep Palestinian terrorists out. Well, I agree with you about the fence. It doesn't have to be the, the final delineation. And of course, I agree with you in principle with everything you said about uh, Jerusalem, about uh, the Temple Mount. It is the, the fundamental source of Judaism. That's in principle. The question is, there's of course, the old expression, do you want to be smart or do you want to be right? And first of all, for 2,000 years, we didn't have access. And then we uh, retook Jerusalem in 1967, and for a few decades, we didn't allow Jews up to the, up to the Temple Mount uh, almost at all. But it's not as if we don't have access. We do have access to the Kotel, to the Wailing Wall. And I would tend to think that that should be enough. I understand the people who want to go up to pray. Of course, why not? Or it's also, to give another example, it's as if you said that a Catholic couldn't pray in the Vatican, right? Uh, so if, it's an outrage. I agree with you. But that's the world we live in. But also, to, to, to you know, just to elaborate a little bit on that, 
I, I believe it's mostly a pretext. And uh, had it not been um, uh, Jerusalem, it would be something else. We, we do understand, un unfortunately, yet that the Palestinians do not um, recognize Israel's uh, right to exist as a Jewish state. Um, they still um, do not uh, see um, co peaceful coexistence. And this is the problem. And uh, you mentioned the lack of a political horizon or as political negotiations, we have to also uh, understand that if political um, negotiations start and the motivation is just to push Israel and um, maybe delegitimize it, it will not work again uh, on, on two accounts. First of all, during the negotiations in Oslo, um, we experienced the worst um, terror attacks from Islamic Jihad and Hamas. So this can just give more impetus to um, the Islamist uh, for, uh, for terrorism. So I'm not sure that uh, um, in the absence of the right conditions, we should start a political negotiations if it's not very well uh, prepared and we understand what is the end game from the Palestinian side. So this is a first thing. And secondly, if you start political process without really understanding how to reach the end game, it is more dangerous than not starting it at all. Because if a political process starts and fails, then the crisis and escalation can quickly um, go up, just as we saw with the failed Camp David uh, summit in 2000. Well, that you're absolutely right about. Uh, one of the many sources of insanity in the Middle East is the fact that uh, Dafka, uh, precisely when negotiations have been at their height, Palestinian violence has been at their height, and um, just after the Camp David summit, where Israel put a proposal for 100% of Gaza and 90-something percent of the West Bank as a Palestinian state, the Palestinians responded with the Second Intifada, and 1,100 Israelis were massacred. So that we agree with. There's a, there's a difference between reaching an agreement and having a political horizon, a horizon which says, yes, there is a two-state solution at the end of the negotiation. That's, we still have to negotiate what that state looks like. We have to negotiate about Jerusalem, about refugees, about security, all the critical issues but that there's a hope that you, the Palestinians, and the Israeli people, we do have a hope for a better future. And I think uh, too many people on the right, I know this isn't you, Danny, but too many people on the right think that uh, by making peace, by presenting a political horizon, we're doing the Palestinians a favor. And I say absolutely not. We're doing ourselves a favor because... We need a solution, whether it's two-state or some other, some way of ensuring that Israel remains overwhelmingly Jewish and fully democratic. Uh, that's for ourselves. And I think what we've seen, the rise in violence in recent months, it simply gives the lie to the right-wing belief that we can put the Palestinian issue aside and normalization with the Arab world will go ahead. Well, there was, there was phenomenal progress, UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, partly Sudan, uh, it seems to have stopped and it's hard to see who else is going to join the process. But it's not as if we can live in, a, in some sort of status quo in a static situation because every once in a while, uh, well, frequently Hamas and now PIJ in, in Gaza 
send us reminders that the situation is unacceptable from their point of view. And now we see rising violence in the West Bank as well. They're sending us similar reminders. I absolutely agree with you, Chuck, that a, um, a resolution of the Palestinian um, issue or conflict is, is, is an Israeli interest. Absolutely. It's a very, very important, vital Israeli um, interest. But, you know, how to achieve it and how to do it without stripping ourselves from our own defenses and our own and other national interests is um, is the big question. Because uh, first and foremost, I think what we owe to ourselves and to the generations of Jews in the past and in the future is to assure our existence here uh, in in Israel um, with with full sovereignty as as we have now. This is the first and foremost uh, objective now and vision for any Israeli leadership. Only second to that is to do it in a peaceful way and to achieve peace with all our neighbors. We have made uh, peace with most of the Arab countries now and of course the Palestinian problem is the the, the sore point and it's uh, the sticking point and we should do everything within our power without endangering our future to 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 settle the Palestinian issue but again you need two for tango you know it uh, takes uh, two to make peace only one to make war unfortunately and this is the situation uh, as uh, as we see it now um, so um, when we reach any kind of or when we prepare the ground and this is very important when we prepare the ground for any political uh, horizon or political negotiations, as I mentioned before, it has to be very well thought out and prepared in confidentiality behind uh, behind uh, you know in, in behind uh, closed doors and uh, in in very very um, back deep uh, back channels. For instance, uh, Israel is expected to say outright what it will give up but not the Palestinians. Would the Palestinians give up what they, what is euphemistically called the right of return? They are not doing that. They put their maximalistic um, um, demands on the table to start with. And Israel is expected to give them and, and to go halfway towards them, either with the Palestinian state or many other things. So, again, uh, unless and until we see a real profound change in the politics and in the culture of the Palestinians, I don't see the merit of moving forward because, as I mentioned, you can uh, actually go back very much um, and deteriorate the situation. One last thing I want to say about, you mentioned this uh, um, uh, violence of settlers. I am uh, appalled by any um, uh, violence of settlers against unarmed or innocent Palestinians. Sometimes, and I don't want to generalize, but sometimes they do it out of self-defense. But when they don't do it out of self-defense, when they go and uproot olive trees of poor Palestinians, or if they just uh, um, you know, hit them or throw rocks at them, this is not Jewish, this is not Zionist, and I think there should be a wall-to-wall condemnation of this by all parties 
here in Israel? Well, once again, we're in agreement, and I think um, actually people on the, the moderate right like yourself, I mean, this, of course, is a particularly uh, difficult problem because it, it makes it harder to sell the, the right-wing case when you have these people behaving in the way they are, misbehaving in the way they are. Let me throw out a couple of things which I know you'll disagree with and um, some sensitive topics. Well, first of all, you said that you need two for a tango, and that's absolutely true. I'm afraid today that we don't have one for a tango, let alone the two. We certainly didn't for the most of the 12 years of the Netanyahu government. The government from the last year has just been paralyzed. It couldn't go ahead if it had wanted to. And as I was saying before, things after the upcoming elections could get really, really ugly if uh, the right wins here. And it's not a question of the Likud, it's the Likud and the crazies on the right, the Benville and Smotrich, who will almost uh, undoubtedly be part of uh, a future right-wing coalition. Uh, then all the bets are off. But let me put that aside for the moment. My fear is the following. And remember, I speak only from an Israeli perspective. You know, what's good for us? I, I'm, not, I'm a nice guy, so the Palestinians have to have their demands met as well, but I don't care about the Palestinians in the final analysis. That's their problem. What I'm afraid of is that the prospects for a two-state solution, uh, well, it may be too late, and that may be the end of the Zionist dream of a overwhelmingly Jewish and, and, and purely democratic Israel. I think that the Palestinians have, with considerable likelihood, have missed their historic opportunity to have a state. They said no to everything, time after time. Uh, and we, of course, we contributed to that. There were today uh, 450,000 settlers, not including those in Jerusalem, at the time of the Second Intifada, 20 years ago, there were 200,000. So we've certainly contributed our part to it. But be that uh, both sides. The, the bottom line is that it, is, it may be too late for a two-state solution. Maybe we've got another few years in which it's still politically viable. And the fact that the Palestinians may have lost their historic opportunity to have a state, well, that's their problem. What I'm afraid is that we're losing our opportunity to maintain a Jewish and democratic Israel. Well, the issue of two-state solution, of course, is politically explosive, but I think it is very, very important to explore it a little bit. If a two-state solution means that there is no security for Israelis, uh, like we saw in Gaza, uh, the disengagement from Gaza proved that um, you cannot trust uh, the Palestinians, uh, every territory that uh, you give them, they use it as a platform to attack us. And then we are in a much uh, worse situation. Uh, and the West Bank is not just like Gaza, which is more secluded, more far from uh, our strategic and uh, uh, installations and, uh, of course, m major uh, population areas. So if a two-state solution means that we will have uh, Hamas and other terrorists um, five kilometers from where we sit here now uh, in our home in Hora Sharon, then of course uh, I don't want a two-state solution. If a two-state solution really meant peaceful coexistence and historical re, uh, um, uh, 
reconciliation. This is something else, but I, so I don't see at this point happening. And about this threat, which mostly comes from uh, left quarters in Israel, about the one-state solution, I don't buy it, and I'll tell you why. First of all, there is no experience in history where you can really force on um, a, a political uh, entity on two uh, s different peoples, even if they live in the same territory, uh, to, uh, to just and mash them together and make them one entity. We know it, it did not work in Yugoslavia, it did not work in the defunct Soviet Union, uh, it hardly works in uh, Belgium between the Valons and the Flems, uh, let alone uh, Corsica and the French, the uh, Basques and the Catalans in, uh, in, in, in Spain. So I don't think this is viable. I think this is a hollow uh, uh, threat. And um, also, uh, if I put it to the Palestinians, I'm not sure the Palestinians are for that. First of all, you have uh, half of the Palestinian people are Hamas. We know, or or at least are are supporting Hamas in in you know one degree or another. So Gaza will not be part of uh, from their point of view a part of a one-state solution because the Hamas and Islamic Jihad do not see uh, a Jewish or an, an Israeli state at all. So this is uh, why I don't the think it's viable-state solution is that it won't be predominantly Jewish. exactly. But I I don't think that even from their ideology from the start for them to join the Jews in a one country or a one state which is not governed by Sharia law, I don't think it's a, uh, an option from, from their point of view. Um, and um, even the, the Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, certainly the younger ones, I do not see. And I'm not sure that we have seen any um, you know, trusted uh, polls that show that Palestinians really want it. I think it's just a, a, um, a threat. Uh, and even if Abu Mazen uh, talks about the possibility of, uh, and, and he has not yet, of a one-state uh, solution, I don't think there is any credibility uh, to it. So I do not see it as a real threat to Israel. First of all, I tend to agree with you that most Palestinians don't want it. We don't have credible polls, but I think the answer is that they don't. Uh, I know that most Israelis don't. The remarkable thing is that, well, there's one poll that I saw just a few years ago which showed that 95% of the Israeli population is against a one-state solution. And yet people, for a variety of reasons, have been voting for decades now since the Likud first came to power in 77, they've been voting predominantly for parties that are leading, I mean, whose policies are leading to this outcome. Not because anybody wants a one-state solution. No one wants it. It's a horror. But uh, you gave uh, various examples from Europe. <laughs> Look at Syria and Iraq, if you want to know what a one-state solution in the Mideast looks like. But it's happening. That's what's happening on the ground. And the ability to separate is... Uh, well, at best, we have limited time to do it. I also would uh, say sometimes it is wiser not to find uh, bad solutions just to get to, 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 to tick or have a check mark on it. Sometimes it's better to keep situations uh, not finalized, a little bit in the fog,
so far, first of all, because things can happen in the future that you cannot predict. Uh, one um, great, uh, I think, example is the Golan Heights. There are real serious negotiations between Israel and Syria. By the way, under three prime ministers, started with Bibi Netanyahu, or actually with uh, Rabin, Bibi Netanyahu, and, uh, and Barak. And um, they were very close to an agreement. So just think, Chuck, had we reached an agreement and we drew and, uh, from uh, with the, 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 the Golan Heights, we would have Iran today on our borders. It would have been, in retrospect, it would have been a complete error, a so, historic mistake. Right. So this is why I, I don't think that at this point we can judge intelligently uh, what could uh, uh, really the future bring in terms of uh, a Palestinian state. So sometimes maybe the wisest thing is to wait, although it has its price. I'm not uh, um, denying that. But sometimes it may be better because the old configuration of the Middle East can, can change in the future. Um, so, um, and, and, and maybe some solutions can present themselves in a natural way in a faraway future. Things that maybe we cannot be thinking now can happen in the future. One thing, for instance, may be the Palestinians of the West Bank joining Jordan. This is just uh, one example. But there could be many others that we cannot even foresee now. So I think it's the, the judicious, the responsible thing from Israel's right now is to sometimes you have to uh, just to hunker down and um, do whatever you can to uh, defend yourself. I think we're doing it pretty well. Uh, but what's most important is that we do not just busy ourselves only with self-defense, but also with continuing uh, uh, promoting the country, advancing the country, developing the country. And uh, I think today we can be very proud as Israel has one of the strongest economies in the world. I would certainly agree with you if the situation on the ground was static, but it isn't. There's no status quo. As I said before, 20 years ago there were 200,000 settlers in the West Bank. Today there's 450,000 and just from a political perspective, it's questionable whether any future Israeli government will have the political wherewithal to conduct a withdrawal of, uh, if it's 450,000 today, then we'd have to move a good 150,000 people uh, back inside the fence, the fence line, west of the fence. Unless, maybe, in some future Palestinian, uh, uh, future Palestinian um, generation, will say, well, we are for a one-state solution, but our face is to the east, not to the west. Part of Jordan. Or and uh, so, again, some things may resolve themselves, um, but I am not kidding myself. I am not very optimistic for the short run. But, again, I go, it goes back to the very basic that our first uh, allegiance and responsibility is to ourselves. Well, there's no to, doubt. To ensure... Uh, continuity and safety and well-being of our only one Jewish state to live here forever and ever. Well, that we certainly agree with. And I must say, I think in the end, if you look at the primary concerns of the left and the right here, I think the big weakness to the left's argument is exactly with the issue that you were raising before, which is the security issue. Uh, you were saying, okay, if you can guarantee me security, I'm willing to talk about a two-state solution. There are no guarantees. 
And when I talk to people and try and sell the idea of a two-state solution, uh, people say, well, can you guarantee me that the West Bank will not become another Gaza, another platform for rockets? Even when, and I talk about there being stringent security arrangements, I say, well, in all honesty, no, I can't guarantee that. As a matter of fact, to, to be fully um, uh, honest, a full disclosure here, uh, one thing that I'm convinced of is that there will be ongoing uh, conflict with the Palestinians even after a peace agreement. There will be terrorism. There may be some rockets. So people say, well, why do you advocate this if that's the case? And I say, because preserving Israel's Jewish and democratic character is number one for me. Let me turn to the issue of succession. Mm -hmm. Abu Mazen, I believe, is 85 years old. Um, 87. 87. Biology mm -hmm. will take its course sooner or later. And the battle for succession seems to be heating up already now. Mm -hmm. He recently appointed uh, Hussein el-Sheikh as the Secretary General of the PLO, and some people interpret this as an attempt to position him to be his successor. He's never named a successor to date. Mm -hmm. And there are other competitors, among them uh, Marwan Borghuti is still mentioned, who's in, mm -hmm. uh, in jail in Israel for uh, the murder of five different people, or five different terror attacks and killing five mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Jibril Ajoub, the former security chief, um, Mahmoud Alul. Mm -hmm. If you have your, if you brought your crystal ball with you today, what can you tell us? What do you think uh, it'll look like, and what are the prospects of Hamas actually taking over? Look, I think that the best way is to try to compare the situation today to the situation that we have. At the at the at the, the last days of Arafat, it was very clear uh, in the case of Arafat that Abu Mazen is the successor. He 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 he, he wasn't only accepted by all the the other members of Fatah. He also was the person was considered as somebody who's coming to 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 uh, how do you say to 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 correct what Arafat the, the wrong thing that Arafat did okay because there were a lot of disagreement between uh, him and Arafat okay so today is not the same situation because Abu Mazen got his opportunity to prove that his way is better than the way of Arafat. And if you look to the period of Abu Mazen, you can say that he bring the Palestinian, uh, 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 the Palestinian arena to a situation that it wasn't at the past, okay? Especially when you are talking about his day with the Prime Minister Salam Fayyad. I think that the situation inside the Palestinian arena is more, it's better than it was before, okay? Now we are talking about a situation in which the leader lost his legitimacy. And many people look at him as somebody that has to leave his position. And they look to the people who are around him as a corrupted people. 
Okay? Now, I think that Abu Mazen, when he's thinking about the day after him, he's thinking about two main issues. One of them is, how can I keep the national stream as the leader of the Palestinian people? So he, like many other Arab leadership, don't want the, the Islamic stream to control their people, okay? Uh, I think you know that all over the Arab world, approximately all over the Arab world, they don't want to let the Islamic, uh, brother, the Islamic Brotherhood to, to, to control the situation. Okay, now this is one of 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 the the, the point that uh, 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 dominant his his decisions. The second is, as far as I can see, he is afraid of the future of his family. Okay, because there is a lot uh, of of criticism of corruption of his family, especially their his sons. And you want to be sure that nobody will try to 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 put them in jail or or or, or to make any kind of 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 steps that can can put them in 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 embarrassed situation. Okay. Uh, and in this case, he's he's thinking about the the lo the loyal people that he can he can choose from the people that is around around him but if you are talking about Hussein sheikh i think that he is not the person who appropriate to this position first of all he is a very corrupted person he considers a corrupted person and sec second from from the from, from the the skill kind of view there is people that are more appropriate to this position than him inside Fatah. So I think that many people is against this nomination, and I'm not sure that he will be the, 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 the successor. Not sure. I think there's a, one more issue that we wanted to address on the Palestinian issue today. Of course, we could talk about this uh, for weeks. But the uh, the issue was uh, one of uh, the succession. Uh, Abbas is 87 years old, and his hold in the West Bank is at best uh, diminishing. Let's hear what uh, Yohanan had to say about this. Well, we heard uh, Colonel, uh, Colonel uh, Yohanan Suref. Uh, I think one thing is, again, it's worth mentioning and uh, emphasizing, is that the succession in the Palestinian uh, Authority, just like in any dictatorship, uh, it very much um, depends on the uh, outgoing leader, because uh, the main interest of the outgoing leader, like uh, Abu Mazen in the succession, is the well-being of his children. So he would like to choose the one that will keep the interests of his, uh, uh, of his children and family, and we know that uh, his children are the most corrupt in the Palestinian Authority, that uh, there is nothing 
whether from cement or anything else that goes into the West Bank, that they do not uh, um, have some excise uh, personal tax on it. Uh, they control the wave bands with the uh, the, the, the cell phone uh, company. So, uh, so it is very much <laughs> Abu Mazen interest to to decide who will be the the one to succeed him. Although there is no guarantees, you know, it very much reminds me of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, uh, um, Yeltsin, who replaced Gorbachev, which just died uh, yeah. this, uh, recently. But uh, Yeltsin and his uh, cronies, when uh, they realized that he cannot longer um, be in power, they looked for somebody who can take care of their own interests, of the groups uh, surrounding uh, Yeltsin and his own family. They looked around, and who do they pick? They pick um, Putin, who in his very, very uh, conniving, sophisticated uh, KGB-style um, maneuvers convinced them that he would be the best to take care of their interests. Of course, he came into power and got rid of all of them. So, uh, Abu Mazen, beware. <laughs> well, I think we can conclude on a very optimistic note. Thank you for that. Um, uh, let's hope that the Palestinians do not choose uh, their version of a Putin to succeed Abu Mazen. Uh, let me just once again remind people, send in questions, requests for topics, uh, issues you disagree with to IDDF at the Miriam Institute. IDDF, Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum at the Miriam Institute. Miriam spelled with a Y. Danny, it was great as usual. Same here, and we'll look forward to the next time. Until then. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IDDF podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute, hosted by Chad Freilich, featuring Danny Ayalon. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast at wherever it is you download your podcasts from, and please consider making a tax-deductible donation to our work via our website at www.miriaminstitute.org. I want to invite you to share this podcast with your friends and family and to submit your questions and comments, which you can send directly to Chuck and Danny via their email address at iddf at miriaminstitute.org. Thank you again for your time and for your attention, and we look forward to the next time we meet here at the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands.